Hello and welcome to the EHA Mythbusting podcast series and thank you to everyone for listening. I'm Gareth Tucker, the CEO of a Medical Communications Group and I'll be your host for this podcast. This is the third in a comprehensive five-part series funded by the European Haematology Association discussing haematology diseases, diagnosis, assessment and treatment in older adults. The purpose of the podcast series is to share up-to-date information with patients and physicians about haematology in older adults. To access the other podcasts and associated resources from this series, please visit the EHA campus at www.ehaweb.org. The topic for this podcast is the treatment of haematological malignancies in older adults, an overview of treatment options and polypharmacy. I'm joined by three experts for this discussion, Professor Antonio Almeida, Dr. Valentin Gouda and Dr. Anna Maria Brioli. Professor Almeida, can I come to you first to briefly introduce yourself, your background and your expertise? My name is Antonio Almeida. I'm a haematologist in Lisbon, Portugal, having trained and worked in the UK for many years. My main area of interest, both clinical and research-wise, are chronic myeloid disorders, which include chronic myeloid leukemia, myeloproliferative neoplasms, and MDS. And as a consequence of treating many older patients, I'm also very interested in AML in the elderly. Thank you, Professor Almeida. Dr. Gouda, could uh, you also briefly introduce yourself? My name is Valentin Gouda. I am located in Cologne in Germany. I'm a dual-trained hemato-oncologist and a geriatrician. And um, hematological-wise, my main interest is chronic lymphocytic leukemia. And here in Cologne, I'm currently running a division of oncogeriatrics. So a uh, key interest is also to treat um, very old patients uh, with geriatric syndromes with an oncological or hemato-oncological uh, medical background. Thank, thank you, Dr. Gouda. And also, Dr. Brioli. Yeah, hello, my name is Anna Maria Brioli. I am currently located in Germany, in Greifswald. I've trained in Italy and UK, and my main research interest is multiple myeloma. Here in Greifswald, I'm currently leading the multiple myeloma clinic. And of course, I have a lot of interest in older patients with hematologic malignancies, as these are often the patients who do even present with multiple myeloma, which is a disease of the elderly. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you all for joining us. So let's jump straight into the first question. And I guess more from the patient-centric uh, perspective to start with, and, and maybe straight to the topic of polypharmacy. Um, do patients see polypharmacy as a, as a problem? I have to say, in my experience, yes, they actually do. We have the issue that, especially when we are prescribing multiple myeloma therapy, we have now the luxus that we have a lot of different treatments, but they also come with a lot of co-medications, prophylaxis, antibiotic prophylaxis, antiviral prophylaxis, uh, antithrombosis prophylaxis, so that in the end we prescribe not only one drug, but actually a bunch of five, six different, six different drugs, which especially for an older patient who already has hypertension or diabetes medication can be a problem. You end up having like 10 or even more uh, pills to take in a day, which of course can be an issue. Um, would you would you agree, Professor Armado? Is that a sort of fairly universal picture for for all? Absolutely, and I and I think it's not. Uh, I mean, it's the amount of drugs, but also the way the patients have to take them, and it does get very confusing, especially in elderly patients who live on their own. 
Of course, this can be circumvented with pill boxes and specific helps, but the patients do find it confusing, especially when some drugs such as in CML, some of them have to be taken on an empty stomach and at specific times away from meals, which makes it a little bit more difficult. And also some drugs have specific interactions with both foods and other drugs that patients worry a lot about. And it's also important to point out that many of the patients who are in polypharmacy also take many drugs uh, on demand. So they may take analgesics on demand, they may take uh, anti-inflammatories, and even supplements that they don't tell us because they have, uh, they feel they're not medication, they are just a food supplement and that have interactions. So polypharmacy is a problem for us, but also for patients. And, and I think what Anna Maria said is very important. Patients find it difficult to take many pills. And if they suddenly have to take 10 more pills during the day, they tend to get confused and find it difficult to swallow all of them. Mm, thank you. Yeah, we'll, we'll touch more on this, this aspect of polypharmacy, the, the pill volume, and certainly you touched on drug-drug interactions and, and treatment with other agents. I guess just, again, thinking generally, maybe Dr. Gouda, I could come to you with this. Do patients tend to have a, a preference for, for oral medication? So even if it means more tablets or IV treatments, I mean, do, does, that, does that sort of come into this consideration in terms of this, this sort of balance of, of different therapeutics? I would say that, at least in my experience, this is highly individual. So we have patients that truly prefer um, solely oral treatment. And there are also others saying that um, I am already taking enough pills. Uh, if there's an infusional treatment, I would welcome that. And I would like to confirm um, the um, experience of the previous speakers that many elderly patients are complaining about the, the amount of their pills and maybe just to add in my experience, there are also sometimes relatives of these older patients. So their children who sometimes apparently um, feel that a huge amount of pills, whether it's just for the treatment of the hematological malignancies, but also for comorbidities might be a threat to their older father or older mother. And so they are very critical towards this huge amount of pills if they see it uh, given to these older patients. So that might be another aspect. So it's not just the patients themselves, but also their relatives who are sometimes complaining about this. So it's, it's actually a fear, not just of the, the volume of pills, but actually whether, whether uh, the pills that you're giving them to treat the malignancy may actually have impact else, elsewhere, you mean that may impact other, other therapies? Yes, and may cause, um, of course, adverse events, toxicity through the mechanisms that Professor Almeida has already mentioned. Interesting. So maybe let's let's move into specifically more around the, the hematological malignancies. And I guess the, the question maybe I could come back to, to Dr. Brioli again. What are the hematological malignancies in these elderly patients that you think are, I guess, are particularly relevant to what we're talking about today and, and why those in particular? Well, first of all, I would definitely mention multiple myeloma, which is also my area of expertise. That is for sure a problem. The median age of diagnosis is about 69 years. 
the medications that we give do need a lot of co-medications because, for example, proteasome inhibitors do need to be associated with an antiviral prophylaxis. Um, immunomodulatory drugs needs to be associated with an antithrombotic prophylaxis. And then they also get high doses dexamethasone, so you also need a prophylaxis against pneumocystis pneumonia, which in the end ends up that the patients do have not only the specific myeloma drugs that we are prescribing them, but also an amount of other pills has prophylaxis together to what they are taking. But I also think, for example, CLL is also a very relevant disease. Often patients do have cardiological problems, which may cause a problem with the treatment that we are giving. For example, if we think of PTK inhibitors or even AML patients, CML patients as well, as uh, uh, treatment has to be taken, as uh, um, Professor Almeida already uh, mentioned, treatment sometimes needs to be taken of an empty stomach. If the patient's ready has to take uh, four pills in the morning before breakfast, then he doesn't know when he has breakfast, then he has to uh, wait two hours to take uh, his uh, medication, then another two hours before he has lunch, it gets all quite confusing. So I think these are the diseases which are more relevant for our talk today. Professor Almeida, are there other malignancies you, you would add to that list? And I guess also it'd be interesting just to get a feel of, I guess, the sort of the volume of elderly patients of, of those kinds that you see coming through your, your clinic or your practice. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think it's significant to point out that all hematological malignancies, as Zena Maria was saying, are more prevalent in the elderly. So any disease, be it lymphoid, myeloma, myeloid uh, malignancies, they're all more prevalent in this population. And this means that the volume that we have in our individual clinics, and I'm sure uh, both Anna Maria and Valentin will attest to that, in, their, in our particular areas will be much bigger in this age range. So I have many patients with MDS, which is really by excellence an elderly disease. I have many patients with AML, which even though it's very prevalent in young uh, patients, or should I say more dramatic in young patients, it is, it is very frequent in elderly patients compared to younger patients. CML is probably a disease more of younger patients, but even so the population is high. So, you know, I, for example, at the moment, I have approximately 100 MDS patients in my clinic and approximately 20 elderly AML patients in my clinic. And this is my normal routine. And I follow overall about 200 CML patients of which at least half of them are over 65. And this really shows how big this problem is and how big this dimension of treating elderly with these malignancies are. And I'm sure that uh, Valentin will have similar numbers in his clinics for lymphoma as well Anna Maria for myeloma. Dr. Goody, do you want to just comment on that in terms of volumes? Yes, I totally agree. And I think um, Antonio is right. Um, there is no specific hematological malignancy that we have to um, highlight here um, that is most important and particularly relevant uh, to the topic of polypharmacy. I think we can maybe make a general difference. I mean, we have oral treatment for many hematological malignancies, um, including myeloma, um, CML, CNL, etc. And um, there are some where treatment is mostly not exclusively, but mostly more on the infusional side. So like AML, for example, although 
there are some oral treatments, of course, being available even for these uh, diseases. And when we talk about polypharmacy, we often think of a lot of pills, actually. Uh, and so this is more than um, relevant for the oral treatments. But of course, polypharmacy also plays a role, even if you treat infusionally. You touched on that. Maybe I'll come back to you first. Dr. Good. You, you touched on this sort of polypharmacy number of pills. Um, and obviously, we've we started to touch on this range of hematological malignancies. But how might uh, the comor- comorbidities that already exist in some of these older patients actually affect the treatment of some of these malignancies? So I guess the, the kind of therapies that they're already already receiving for other conditions. Dr. Good, I don't know if you wanted to comment first on that. Oh, yes, Sure. I think, again, this is highly individual. There are patients that have only few comorbidities, but these comorbidities are so prominent and relevant and can highly interact with the hematological disease and a treatment that is planned. Um, For example, Anna Maria has given the example of a a CLL patient um, in which uh, a BTK inhibitor treatment with ibrutinib, for example, or acalabrutinib might be uh, indicated, but uh, who has um, severe cardiac comorbidities. So that might uh, exclude such treatment for this patient. So this can be the case. And there can be also some patients who just have many comorbidities um, that have no direct interaction uh, in the first view with the planned treatment, but um, which may cause uh, a lot of comodications for hypertension, for COPD, uh, for cardiac diseases, for gastrointestinal problems, etc. And so the, the simple amount of drugs that are taken uh, could make interactions rather unpredictable if you introduce new drugs for a tumor treatment. Thank you. Dr. Birley, we cited uh, your example with the CLL patients. I mean, are there other typical contraindications that you come across that, I guess, uh, impact the way you approach therapy for some of these malignancies? Yeah, and the approach therapy and also the way of co-medication that you might give, for example, let's think about a multiple myeloma patient who already has diabetes and already has a previous neuropathy. In these patients, I cannot give him certain types of proteasome inhibitors. I cannot use bortezomib, for example. Or I have to explain the patients that his neuropathy might get worse. And neuropathy is actually quite a bit of a problem because older patients, they often have diabetes. They often have an underlying neuropathy. And there's not really some kind of specific drugs. I mean, we can give, of course, um, pregabaline, gabapentin, similar medication, but there's not really something that makes it really better. And that's one of the patients who have it really have problems with that. That could be an example that I could make. Um, I think it also depends a bit of the disease. So um, for example, again, the example of myeloma there, we have the luxus that we have had quite a wide quite spectrum of drugs which have been uh, approved in the last years. So that can the treatment can be tailored a bit on patients' comorbidities. I would not give, for example, carfizumab to somebody with a high uh, cardiological problem uh, uh, I would probably choose another proteasome inhibitor, but that is not the case in all the diseases. So, of course, that uh, is something that one has to really take into consideration when deciding the treatment for patients. Maybe also uh, Professor Almeida wants to comment a bit on that. Yes, I and mean, we have a lot of interactions in the myeloid side. 
with comorbidities and with um, and with medications. And this does pose significant problems because many of these comorbidities that affect the efficacy and also affect the side effects of the medication are more prevalent in the elderly. I'll give you an example, the, the tyrosine kinase inhibitors that I used in chronic myeloid leukemia, especially nilotinib and ponatinib, but also uh, dazatinib, have a higher incidence of cardiovascular disease. Now, cardiovascular disease is very prevalent in the elderly population, which means that if we are considering using a more potent tyrosine kinase inhibitor in a relatively young elderly patient, if we want to call it that, in a 70-year-old, which according to the World Health Organization really should live another 20 years. So, you know, it is, it is a population in which we're not aiming to palliate, but we're aiming to treat adequately. Um, but they have cardiovascular disease that puts serious impediments on what tyrosine kinase inhibitor we can use. Another good example is roxolitinib, the JAK2 inhibitor, which is very, very efficacious in myelofibrosis, in controlling symptoms and in controlling disease burden. But in patients who have skin tumors, it can be very dangerous because it can unblock the immune regulation that keeps skin tumors in check. And very often we get explosion of basal cell tumors, of squamous cell carcinomas in patients treated with JAK2 inhibitors. And perhaps this is not so much a problem in Northern Europe, but in Southern Europe, it's certainly a problem because our patient population has had a high exposure to sunlight, uh, especially the elderly because they were around before you know, strong sun creams and above all publicity was used. And so skin tumors, sun-induced skin tumors are a problem. Um, when we're talking about MDS and AML, here we have a different issue, which is uh, really the issue of balancing the side effects and the difficulties with the severity of the disease. We know that if we withdraw treatment from an elderly patient with AML, their life expectancy can be less than six months. And so really we have to deal with the side effects, with the comorbidities and with the interactions as best we can, but we cannot withdraw treatment. And again, this presents different challenges, which are difficult for us and very difficult for patients to understand very often because they feel that the treatment may be doing more harm than good. I guess given that, and you, you talked about this very delicate balance of treatment harm versus good and, and how do you actually manage underlying conditions, so I guess what principles do you take in terms of managing this whole challenge around polypharmacy and the concerns? And maybe we should talk first about the patients and then we can maybe come back to the other aspects that we touched on before, sort of family members and things. So I guess how, what sort of conversations do you have to begin with with the patients in terms of how you will balance the therapies for their malignancies with, with other therapies that they're currently on. I mean, maybe Professor Ahmed, you, you could comment on this first. Yes, I mean, I think um, the diseases I treat in the myeloid world are quite heterogeneous. So I'd like to start with acute myeloid leukemia and high-risk MDS, because these are diseases that have a very short life expectancy if they're not treated. Um, and by short, as I said, I mean six months or less. And at the end of the day, we do have to explain to patients and families that not treating uh, will entail a short life expectancy. And the treatment inevitably has side effects. Not only does it have side effects, it does not have immediate efficacy. 
it can actually take a while for things to work. And in this context, that we, we need to sort of build into our conversation a certain resilience and expect manage the expectations. The other thing that is important is that obviously, as we said, patients are worried about their comorbidities and they are worried about the number of pills they take. And as Anna Maria said, we also have to prescribe a lot of prophylaxis, uh, not only um, against infections, but also against tumor lysis and against uh, uh, other side effects, uh, nausea, etc. And this can confuse things and can make patients reluctant to be treated. And I think it's very important to be clear, to manage the expectations of patients. And it is always very important to be proactive about side effects and potential um, cross interactions. Because if a patient is warned, not only are they expecting what's going to happen, but also they are more armed to deal with it, both in terms of uh, psychologically and expectations, but also in terms of uh, a feeling that they can take pills and that they can take uh, preventative measures for this. So really managing expectations and explaining clearly what the disease can do are very important going forward to try and treat the diseases. In, in the more chronic diseases, the balance is more delicate because Often, yes, our medications do have benefit, but they are not the only available uh, drugs, unlike high-risk MDS and AML, where we have very limited treatment options. In lower-risk MDS and chronic myeloid malignancies, we have other options. And so the discussion of the options and the side effects and the reason why we have chosen this dr drug for this patient is always very important. So I think communication with patients, with families, explaining the aims of treatment and being proactive about explaining side effects goes a long way towards treatment acceptance and towards being able to manage side effects and comorbidities in this context. So managing expectations, key proactivity around side effects. Dr. Bioli, what are, what are your thoughts here? I guess your, your principles or either the, the process that you would go through yeah, I actually, I have to say that I totally agree with what Professor Almeida just said. And I, one of the most important is really this managing expectation. The patients that I see in the clinic are often patients who come with multiple myeloma that do have bone pain because they often have osteolysis or bone fractures. And one has to be very clear that the treatment will help them to improve their pain, but this will not happen from today to tomorrow. It's going to take some time that the treatment works, they would have to be patient and it can even be that at the beginning they will actually feel worse because they might have nausea, they might start feeling a bit of neuropathy, they might have problems uh, with their gastrointestinal system, uh, maybe diarrhea or sepsis. So one has to be very proactive and I think one has also to be very, as Professor Mendek rightly said, in all dermatological disease, very proactive also in managing side effects, actively asking the patients every time they come how is your digestion? Do you have problems? Do you have nausea? Do you have neuropathy? And then one can also, if one then intervenes, maybe with also appropriate dose reductions. It's uh, in myeloma now, there are very nice tables, which according to how frail the patient is, they already suggest that one should start already with a little lower doses because it has been seen in these chronic diseases. It's actually most important that 
dose density than the dose intensity. So it's more important to, that the patient is kept on treatment rather than doing a lot of treatment at the beginning and then to stop. So maybe start with a little bit lower doses and then if the uh, tolerance to the treatment is good, one can still try to increase. This applies especially to very older patients, the 80-year-old patients that even if they don't have so many comorbidities, just for being 80-year-old might be frailer. And that has been in some in the lymphoidematologic disease very clearly demonstrated actually so far. Thank you, Dr. Burley. And, and Dr. Gouda, just were there any other aspects from your side, I guess maybe either from your own clinical experience or also you touched before on uh, having to sometimes convince or persuade, speak to family members of some of these older patients. Are there any subtleties in there or, or do the same principles apply as have been discussed for, for speaking to the patients themselves? Well, generally speaking, of course, the principles are the same. Um, if a patient, an older patient with a polypharmacy, meaning a lot of comorbidities next to the hematological malignancy is presenting, I think the biggest mistake one can make as a hemato-oncologist is to think that the patient is uh, an individual that can be separated into um, several entities. So saying that uh, the hematologist is responsible to prescribe the hematological treatment, including prophylaxis, and um, that the rest of the medication is the task of the general practitioner, for example, or the task of other specialists like the cardiologist, etc. Um, I think um, this can uh, be a risk to make mistakes and so just to a report from my own clinical experience, as said at the beginning, I'm seeing patients being 80 years old or older, hospitalized, functionally um, very ill, and they usually present with, I would say, 10 pills or, or more, uh, or 10 drugs. And um, what you have to do then together with the patient and with the relatives also, is to go through every drug actually and uh, to check whether the drug has a purpose anymore or not. Because sometimes some of these drugs have lost their, their original purpose, sometimes even longer ago. So uh, some prophylactic treatment that is no longer relevant for the overall prognosis of the patient. Um, and this is where the art of deprescribing begins. So um, when we really must have rush to, um, to deprescribe some drugs from the uh, huge amount of these pills. And this is sometimes difficult because uh, doctors are always at fear to make mistakes um, and to um, have greater risk if you do that. But in my experience, there's a lot of room in these patients to deprescribe drugs, um, like for example, statins or aspirin, etc. Um, sometimes they're really not needed anymore, uh, even that at an earlier time point, these drugs uh, were important for the um, well-being and for the pro uh, overall prognosis of a patient. So deprescribing, I think, is a very important step next to explaining things, of course, to the patient and to the relatives. 
Thank you. That's good. Interesting. The, the whole concept of deprescribing. Um, I think it probably brings us to our final question, which I think is more around, I guess, trying to provide some help and guidance to our to our listeners. And maybe Dr. Good, I'll come back to you first with this one. What would be your your take home messages for how polypharmacy concern should be overcome in elderly patients with hematological malignancies? What would be your your key principles to leave people with? Well, I think that um... First of all, a hematologist should realize whether a patient, an older patient with a hematological malignancy uh, under treatment has polypharmacy or not. Um, we should check whether the patient uh, has problems with, with that. And if we are experienced enough, we should really look at these medications even if we are not a cardiologist or a nephrologist, etc. and at least check whether some deprescribing possibilities might be there. And if we are unsure, of course, we can cooperate with ex other experts uh, to get to a decision there. Thank you. Dr. Brioli, what would be uh, your, your key principles or key take-homes? Well, I think they're actually quite similar to what uh, um, Dr. Goethe said. We have to really have a look at all the treatments our patients do have. We, I think the approach to an elderly patient with an hematologic malignancy has to be a multidisciplinary approach. So we also, these patients don't come only to us. Uh, they, they go to the nephrologist, they go to the cardiologist. So we need to get in contact also with the colleagues and then also discuss with them what can be reduced, what can be done, how can the treatment be optimized. And uh, I think one also should ask the patients, uh, which is what Professor Almeida said at the very beginning, are you taking also something else? Because they often take uh, um, this, the called nature, natural drugs or natural medicine or homeopathic medicine uh, that we don't know about, and that can have drug-drug interaction, and we need to know that. And what I've found out, sometimes patients are afraid of telling us that because they're afraid we might judge if they tell us they take some natural products and we have to reassure them we're not judging them we just want to make sure that what they're taking doesn't interfere with our treatment a very easy example uh, green tea high doses of green tea do interfere with the effect of proteasome inhibitors the patients need to know that grape juice might interfere with most of the treatments we do the patients need to know that and often they don't know they think they are uh, doing something very healthy by drinking a lot of uh, grapefruit and uh, we wonder why our treatment has higher side effects or doesn't work so I think this is very, very important. Seeking that broad openness and conversation, yes. Professor Almeida, are there any other items that you would add? Well, the other, other thing, uh, highlights collaboration and multidisciplinary approach is very, very important. And I cannot agree more with Valentina and Maria. This is really the secret of success in the way forward. We're trying to do th some things that we are not specialized in and we don't know how to do properly often in my experience leads to mistakes but the other very important thing is to use tools there are lots of online tools that will give us drug drug interactions that will estimate what can happen if we mix drugs if we mix supplements with drugs and these can be very useful um, in clinic in day-to-day -day life Thank you all. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Uh, thank you to Professor Antonio Almeida, Dr. Valentin Gouda, and Dr. Anna Maria Brioli for their time and expertise, and for discussing so clearly the challenges and how to overcome the challenges associated with polypharmacy 
in older patients with haematological malignancies. Thank you also to everyone for listening. A reminder that this is the third podcast in a series of five. To access the other podcasts and the associated resources from this series, please visit the EHA campus at www.ehaweb.org. And please do join us again for the next in the EHA Myth Busting series.